Okay, well, everybody knows what I'm going to say next, because I'm kind of consistent that way, I hope at least. And that is, turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. It is the uh, book of Exodus, or Shemot, chapter 25. It starts in the first verse, and it says, as you know, these are not the words that are going to give the name to the Parsha, because they're not that unique. Uh, Yahuwah spoke to Moshe quite a bit. That's how it begins. It says, and Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, and here's what he said. Speak unto the Benai Yisrael, that they take for me Terumah. Okay, so there's the unique word Terumah, and it means an offering, or a, a free will offering, or a gift. And um, that is, of course, then the name of the Parsha. It's called Parsha Terumah, an offering. Of every man whose heart makes him willing, you shall take my offering. And you notice that that would be the word then, Terumati, mine. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold and silver and brass, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, seal skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for uh, the sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate. And then he says, let them make le me, for me, le, a sanctuary. A mishkan, a mikdosh. So mikdosh is the is the term that's used here for sanctuary. But we also know that the the name for the uh, the um, the tabernacle itself in Hebrew is mishkan. So that I might dwell among them. And here comes the key. According to all that I will show you, the pattern of the mishkan and the pattern of all the furniture thereof. This is how you shall make it. And um, in other words, what we're going to get here is a blueprint, and Moshe is going to be be shown the physical drawing because it is kind of difficult to uh, to read the description and understand exactly what this looks like. So he will know what it looks like, and so will those who are going to be given the uh, the understanding of um, how to do it. Then it says they shall make an ark out of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length of it, and a cubit and a half the breadth of it. So it's two and a half cubits by one and a half cubits. Now remember, a cubit is about 18 inches, give or take, depending on how big the person's arm is. But uh, that's generally how we understand a cubit, about a foot and a half. So this is a um, uh, an ark that's essentially, well, if you saw the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the, the size is probably not too far off. And it's also a cubit and a half high. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Within and without, you shall overlay it. You shall make upon it a crown of gold all about. So this is going to be a really interesting box, basically, that is lined inside and outside with gold. And gold, of course, is very conductive, has lots of amazing electrical properties. Uh, there is a whole lot, as you might suspect, that has been uh, speculated about with the arc and how the arc works. Um, the... Um, uh, the engineer in me wants to say, hey, it looks like when you put the lid on it that it becomes a Faraday shield. And in other words, it prevents uh, electromagnetic waves from going inside. It could also have a lot of capacitance, but if it's um, connected all the way around inside and out with pure gold, then it's not a capacitor. It's a, it's a, a shield instead. Now, cast, he says, four rings of gold for it. Put them on the four um, feet thereof. And two rings shall be on one side of it, two rings on the other side. So basically it's got rings on the corners, and this is to be used to lift it up. You'll make staves then, or uh, lifting bars, poles, out of acacia wood. Overlay them with gold. Put those staves into the rings on the sides of the ark, and they'll be used to bear the ark. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, it says. They shall not be taken from it. Now, this is kind of interesting because you say, well, shall not be taken from it. What does that mean? Well, Rashi's comment is kind of simple and um, 
uh, illustrative. He says, not ever. Once they're put in, they just don't come out, period. You shall put the ark uh, into the ark. You shall put that testimony, which I shall give you. And now we're going to talk about the top of it. You shall make an ark covering out of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length of it, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. So it fits precisely on top of the box. And you'll make two cherubim out of gold. Of beaten work you shall make them at the two ends of the ark cover. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. And uh, like I said, put them at the ends of the ark cover. One cherubim will be at one end. I'm, I'm sorry, one cherub, right? Cherubim is plural. One of them is called a cherub. Make one cherub at one end, the other at the other end. And they are of one piece with the ark cover. That'll be an interesting challenge. And you shall make the cherubim of the two ends thereof. The cherubim will spread their wings out on high, screening the ark cover with their wings. So picture the the cherubim, these... Uh, these um, well, angelic beings, I guess, is how most people think of it. Screening the ark cover with their wings, they face one another. Toward the ark cover shall the faces of the cherubim be. Now, there is a um, uh, there is a, um, a midrash that goes along with this, and I don't know if Rashi is credited with it, but, but others have said, uh, yes, when the ark is carried, understand that because the cherubim face one another, that is the way that the carriers will face it too. There will be actually people that will be on each end facing one another. So somebody ends up either walking sideways or walking backwards, and I'm not sure exactly how that works. Put the ark cover above the ark or on top of the ark, and in that ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, the tablets as it's going to turn out. There I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the ark cover, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all the things that I'm going to give you in commandment unto the Benai Israel, the children of Israel. And now we're going to talk about another item that's going to be inside the, uh, the Mishkan. You're making yourself a table of acacia wood. So the table, all likewise, two cubits shall be the length, a cubit the breadth, and a cubit and a half high for the table. Overlay that, too, with pure gold. Make a crown of gold roundabout, so it has a crown up on top. Make a um, border of about a hand breadth about it, and make a golden crown to the border thereof roundabout. So it's going to have a uh, a, um, a border and a um, essentially a um, like a parapet, a little tiny parapet around the top of it. Make in it four rings of gold as well. Put the rings in the four corners on the feet of it, and close by the border shall the rings be, and these are places for those staves that will be used to bear the table, just like we did the ark. Make those staves out of acacia wood. Guess what? We're going to overlay them with pure gold that the table may be born with them. And you're also going to make dishes and pans and jars and the bowls. All of these things will be used with the table to pour out of and uh, the pure uh, out of pure gold. You make those. You set upon this table showbread before me always. So there will be showbread that will be sitting on the table. And, of course, the showbread appears a number of places in Scripture as well, famously with David, if you recall. And then you make, now here is the word in the Hebrew, and I, I don't like the translation. This is one of those places where I think the right answer is to leave it what it is. Not just a candlestick. This is a very specific kind of light. So it is called the menorah in the Hebrew. It's going to make a menorah out of pure gold. And uh, let me pause at this point. I'll make a couple of, of notes about this, because we've got a lot of detail in this piece, obviously. And... Um, because there is so much detail about the fixtures and the furnitures uh, and the and the things that are going to be in here, um, we tend to look at this and go, "Oh, that's this. Uh, how much of this do we need to know? How much of this is is even appropriate anymore?" Well, the answer is this is not an architectural digest, but um, 
it certainly does give us a picture of something, which I can't help but think, since there's not a single jot or tittle of Torah that is passed away, that almost certainly has great value to us. Uh, for example, you know, there have been lots of um, people that make uh, commentaries, metaphor. What is it that we're seeing here? Is it somehow an example or at least an indication of what a throne room of the Almighty might look like? How about this? The ark and the things that are in it uh, may be another way to think of it because this is where the ruach, the presence, is going to go, like a communications center of some kind. Uh, certainly there is a lot of uh, of information associated with it. And, of course, as you know, there's a whole lot of um, religiosity or spiritualization of it that occurs as well. Uh, the question, of course, is if the, uh, if the tabernacle, the mishkan, is within us, and uh, the Torah is written on our hearts. Well, obviously, you know, I have some questions on that because a lot of people claim the Torah is written on my heart. And if that's true, why don't you walk in it? So color me skeptical on that one. But on the other hand, if um, if the Mishkan is something that we should that we, we should expect to be within us, right? The, so that the Ruach can dwell with us just like he did in, in uh, the original one. Well, I think it's somehow appropriate that we at least have an understanding about it and, and kind of picture it, because I can't help but think that there are parallels here that we're going to have to be uh, looking for and paying attention to. All right, back to this idea of this thing that is going to give light. It is the menorah. It's made out of pure gold, a beaten work. Its base, its shaft, its cups, its knops, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Now, this is kind of interesting. There's a whole lot of uh, interesting um commentary, speculation about the menorah. Now, we know what a menorah is, right? We've seen what it probably looks like. It's a seven-branch lampstand. So it's got three on one side, three on the other. It's going to all be described here in detail in a second. But um, on top of these are the places where the little lamps themselves will be held, and there are the flowers and the cups and so forth that are around it. But the key here, the hard part about this is it says you make it out of one single piece of beaten work. Now, I have heard uh, metal workers and jewel smiths and people that have worked with um, you know metal and, and made jewelry and earrings and stuff for years say this is virtually an impossible thing to make. We 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 don't know. I, uh, several folks have have declared that the, this work could not be duplicated today with the skill set that we have uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, and I'll talk about one of them in a second because it's kind of interesting. But literally, to take something like this, if you can imagine, and just beating with a hammer, beating out a piece of great big pure gold, and having to work out all of the pieces and all the knops and flowers and everything else, and configure it and put enough metal in each of the pieces so that when you get to the end, you got enough to make the flowers and so forth. You can't add to it. You can't, um, I guess you could cut a little piece of it. Uh, maybe, it, I, I'm sure they didn't even do that. I suspect it was just beaten out of one piece of, of pure gold. So fascinating how, how that would work. But the other item that's interesting is the um, the general understanding is, you know, pure gold is soft. It's very soft. It turns out that um, those that have um, better understanding of the metallurgy than I do have said, well, you know what? If you built this thing out of pure gold and you set it up, it would sag. It's so heavy, gold is so heavy, that the outer arms would literally go down, kind of like a cactus that the limbs are falling down. So how does this work? Now, answer, there's clearly something that's above our, our uh, state of understanding and that involves um, perhaps a little bit of divine intervention or at least a skill set in order to be able to make this. All right, so you got six branches going out of the sides, three on one side, three on the other. And um, these three cups are made like almond blossoms on one side, a knop and a flower, three cups made like almond blossoms on the other side, a knop and a flower. So 
for these six branches going out of the menorah. And in the menorah, there are four cups made like almond blossoms, knops thereof, and flowers thereof, and a knop under two branches of one piece, and a knop under two branches of one piece. So there's there's literally a branching within a branching, if you think about it, that comes up. So there's one piece, and it branches and branches again. Uh, those those uh, end up then being the total of the six branches going out of the candlestick, uh, out of the menorah. My, my translation keeps saying candlestick, and I think, yeah, that's kind of a gnarly way to put it. Their knops and their branches shall be of one piece with it. There it is again. The whole of it, one beaten work of pure gold. We would say 24 karat gold. Uh, you know, 99.99 or however much they could make it pure. You make these lamps, the the lights, in other words, the uh, um, oil lamps, seven of those. Now there's one in the middle, of course. They shall light the lamps thereof to give light over against it. There are tongs that go with it, snuff dishes. They'll be out of pure gold, too. Of a talent of pure gold shall it be made, along with all the vessels. Now, there's some question about how big a talent is. Uh, with gold, it might be a little bit less. I've heard over the years and uh, heard different numbers, of course. The one that I think is probably about the most reasonable for a talent of silver is somewhere around 60 pounds. turns out that that's about the weight of a bag of $1,000 face value of silver. Uh, so if uh, gold is similar, a talent of gold and a, and a talent of um silver or similar, that's a whole lot of gold. Uh, now, remember, gold is about twice as dense as silver, so uh, other uh, uh, scholars would say, well, maybe a talent of gold is more like 30 pounds. But still, that's a 30-pound menorah made out of pure gold. And gold is being suppressed price-wise, but that's a very, um, uh, just in terms of the materials cost, a very, very um, valuable light. Okay, you see that it's made after the pattern, which is being shown to you in the mount. So he's going to be showing what this is going to look like. Moreover, you make the tabernacle with ten curtains out of fine twine linen, blue, purple, scarlet, with cherubim, the work of the skillful workman, you shall make them. So we're going to see this term skillful workman several times. That's important. And as you've already seen, uh, now we know why it's important, because there is a lot of skill involved in doing this. Length of each curtain, 28 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. So they're essentially 6 feet wide. See, 28, 30, that's close to um, 40-some-odd feet long. These are long curtains, and they all have the same size. Five curtains will be coupled one to another. Other five curtains will be coupled one to another. So they're, they're going to be coupled together with these um, uh, loops that we're going to hear about. Make loops of blue upon the edge of one curtain. That's the outermost in the first set. And likewise, you shall make it in the edge of the, the curtain that's in the outermost in the second set. Fifty loops you make in one curtain. Fifty loops you make in the edge of the curtain that's in the second set. And these loops are opposed. They're opposite to one another. And we're going to make clasps then. It looks like the clasps are going to be used to hold these together out of gold. And couple the curtains one to another with those clasps that the tabernacle may be made whole. So this is going to be the thing that will literally cover it. Make the curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you make. The length of each, they're going to be just a little bit longer than the other curtains. These are 30 cubits long, so 45 feet. Breadth of four cubits, and the 11 curtains will all be of the same size. You shall couple them, five by themselves, six by themselves, double over the sixth curtain in the forefront of the tent. Again, we're going to make loops, 50 of them at the outer edge of one curtain in the first set and 50 in the outer edge of the second most set. Make 50 clasps. This time the, the clasps for this part are going to be out of brass. Put the clasp in the loop. This will couple the tent together so that it may be echad. 
unity. Now, as for the overhanging part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains over shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And uh, the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other side, that which remains is over the length of the tent, and you hang over the sides of the tabernacle on both sides. So we've got these things that are going to be basically draped over the, um, the mishkan to cover it. Then make a covering for the tent out of ram's skins dyed red, and a covering of seal skins above. And again, here's another one of those interesting words where um, what I uh, understand is we, we don't necessarily know what this animal is. Seal skin is, is just uh, one take. Uh, sometimes you'll hear badger skins, right? Badgers, we don't need no stinking badgers. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the animal is. I don't think anyone knows for sure, because all we have is the Hebrew word. You make the boards for the tabernacle, of course, out of acacia wood, standing up. Each of them are ten cubits long and a cubit and a half uh, wide. And uh, there'll be tenons in each board that are joined one to another. And you have some of these for all the boards of the tabernacle. So these these tenons are going to be used on the ends of the boards. The boards are going to basically hold up the ohel, the tent, or, or the, the mishkan. Make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 for the south side, 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under one board for its two tenons. So picture a board that has essentially two bottom pieces, and they're going to go into some sockets that sit and hold them up. Two sockets on another board for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, also 20 boards, 40 sockets of silver there, two under one board, two on the other board. So two under each of them, basically. For the hind part of the tabernacle to the west, six boards. And again, two boards you make in the four, the four corners. They'll be doubled beneath like manner. They complete the top under the first ring, and it will be for them both. These are for the two corners. So thus there shall be eight boards and their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two under each board. Then make bars out of acacia wood, five for the boards of one side of the tabernacle, five for the boards of the other side, five bars for the boards of the side to the uh, the hind part and the west. And in the middle bar, in the midst of the boards, this passes through from end to end. Overlay all of these with gold. Make their rings out of gold for holders for the bars, and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion which has been shown to you in the mount. And uh, there is no shortage of uh, tradition and discussion on this score as well. Essentially, how do you put this thing up? And and it's kind of interesting. I have essentially heard, uh, can't prove this, it's uh, oral tradition, but it's it's interesting at least, that the tabernacle was literally built from the inside out, from the Holy of Holies outward. And again, there's no confirmation of that. But given all the other things that we've seen and some of the things which are, we would say, physically unrealizable, um, I guess that's uh, that's entirely possible. You make a veil, he says, out of blue and purple, scarlet, fine twine linen with cherubim, the work of the skillful workman. In other words, it'll have these, um, we might say embroidery, but it's going to have that design on it. Hang this on those four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks of gold upon the four sockets of silver, and you hang up the veil under the clasps. Bring then in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. So the ark's going to go inside, and the veil will divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. So if you picture a large rectangle, say uh, um, eight feet by four feet long, and then divide it in half, you get a, a, at least a kind of a concept of what we're talking about. A, um, an ox, a, a, um, a rectangular large area that is divided in the middle in half with this veil. 
put the ark cover upon the ark of the testimony, put it in the Kadosh Kodeshim, the most holy place. So uh, notice that, uh, again, Kadosh, Kadosh, we see a Hebrew word that's doubled, and this is literally uh, Kadosh in Be Kadosh Ha Kodeshim. So Kodeshim is plural, so this would literally be in the Holy of Holies. You shall set the table outside that veil and the menorah over against the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south. So um, just outside the veil that separates the Kodesh Kodeshim, you have the, the table with the showbread, called the table of showbread usually, and the menorah over against it on the south side, and put the table on the north side. Then you shall make a screen for this door of the tent out of blue, purple, scarlet, fine twine linen, the work of the weaver in colors, and make for the screen five pillars of acacia, overlay those with gold, hooks, gold, and cast five sockets of brass for them. All right, moving on, it says you'll, we'll make the altar out of acacia wood. This time it's five cubits long, five cubits broad, so it's square. It's um, four squares, as a matter of fact, it tells us. The height is three cubits high. Make the horns of it upon the four corners. The horns are also of one piece uh, with it. And overlay this, not with the gold this time, but with brass. You'll have pots that will be used to take away the ashes, shovels, basins, flesh hooks, fire pans. All the vessels you shall make out of brass. Make for it a grating out of a network of brass. So it has essentially a brass screen that is going to be like you'd see on a barbecue pit or something. And upon the net you shall make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. Put it under the ledge around the altar beneath. The net can reach halfway up the altar. Now make staves for the altar, again, out of acacia wood. This time they are overlaid with brass. The staves are put into the rings, and they're on the two sides of the altar. So just as we've seen before, this is the way with these long poles or staves, this time brass covered, that this um, altar will be carried from one place to another. Hollow with planks you shall make it, as it has been shown to you in the mount. That's how they're going to make it. You shall make the court of the tabernacle for the the south side to the south, and there will be hangings for the court of fine twine linen, a hundred cubits long on one side. So this is a big area outside the Mishkan, a, um, a court that is essentially 150 feet long has pillars, 20, sockets, 20, they're made out of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets are made out of silver. Likewise, on the north side, in length, there'll be hangings, 100 cubits long, and the pillars, 20, sockets, again, 20, they're made of brass. The hooks of the pillars and their fillets are, again, of silver. The breadth of the cord on the west side, there'll be hangings, 50 cubits, 10 pillars, 10 sockets. And, of course, on the east side, 50 cubits, and, again, um, 3 sockets, and um, pillars, three. Hmm. Well, we've got to have some door, kind of a door, right? A way to get in. Other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits, pillars, three, sockets, three. And the gate of the court will be a screen, 20 cubits of blue, purple, scarlet, and fine twine linen. The work of the weaver in colors, and this time, four pillars and four sockets. And we're almost to the end of the portion. So notice what we've seen is, again, a large description of a lot of the uh, the physical elements, the, the furniture, the furnishings, and uh, as well as the uh, the interior and now the court around the outside. All the pillars of the court roundabout, they are filleted with silver. Their hooks are made out of silver, and their sockets are made out of brass. And uh, one other, a comment, I, I've always thought this is kind of fascinating, and it uh, it gives us a, um, uh, a picture that, as an engineer, really kind of almost suggests to me that there's more here going on than meets the eye. 
Notice as we move from the inside, from the Kadesh Kodeshim to the outside, we see the precious metals, essentially. Everything in the Holy of Holies is gold. And then we move outside of that, we encounter the areas where the, uh, the things are now being covered with silver. And then finally, as we get to the outer court, and um, the things that like the, the, the fire area, uh, those are made from brass. And there are places where we almost, almost see an interface between gold and silver and then silver and brass. I guess it, it, it pays to mention, too, that there are all kinds of interesting things that are said to be symbolically associated with the uh, tabernacle or the mishkan. And interestingly, those symbolic things have a physical um, aspect as well. For example, gold is, uh, as you know, shiny and does not tarnish. It's very pure. Uh, it's, a, it's an excellent conductor of uh, electricity and heat and so forth. And, um, well, it's, it's inert. That's, that's one of the things about it. That's part of the reason why it's so shiny and stays that way. Silver, on the other hand, is a fascinating metal. Um, if you look at Scripture, you'll find that silver is often associated with blood, and that's an interesting connection. The other thing about silver is silver turns out to have biomedical applications. Silver is a purifier. Silver kills germs. It kills bacteria. It's antiviral, antifungal. That's part of the reason why, uh, why people will take colloidal silver and nano silver and various kinds of, of things, because silver has some amazing effects. They're putting it in medical bandages. It prevents uh, wounds from uh, becoming infected uh, uh, a lot more than just a bandage by itself would. So there is something going on here with this idea of the, the metals and, of course, the association of silver that's in between with the blood and with purification and with healing. Uh, it's, it's almost hard not to see some of the connections, isn't it? All right, as we end the, uh, the portion, uh, we've got the, um, the length of the cord. Again, 100 cubits. It's 50 wide, and it's 5 cubits high, all of fine twine linen, and sockets made of brass. Then the final verse says this, All of the instruments of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and all of the service thereof, and all the pins thereof, and all the pins of the court, they are made of brass. And with that, the Torah portion ends. We're going to get more description of this next week. And again, we're going to, as, as we go through this, I think it's good at this point just to ask questions and say, uh, why is there so much detail? Well, obviously there has to be detail so that they could make it. But there's not enough detail here that we could actually build this. If you've ever tried, based on the descriptions, you realize there's a whole lot you don't know. You just have to make up. So Moshe is told, you'll be shown the pattern, and that's true. Uh, obviously they were. But on the other hand, there are certainly things about this that as, as we go through and look at it, um, I think it, it, it behooves us to ask questions and try to picture it and say, how does this fit with what we know, what we've been told about a, a place where he will, will gather, fill with his ruach? Remember, too, this idea of, of the level of purity that is contained within the Kadesh Kodeshim. And that's part of the reason why I, I tend to be a little bit um, skeptical. Maybe that's the best word. When I hear people talk about, oh, you know, uh, he dwells in my heart, but I don't keep his word. And I don't really understand. I don't care about Torah. So it's not written on my heart. Well, how pure of a place is it then that if we see the picture here uh, that he would dwell in? We, we have to ask the question, right? Yeshua says, as you know, that um, the way that leads to destruction is broad. A lot of folks go that way. But the way that leads to life, that path is narrow, and few there be that find it. Um, there are elements in Scripture, in other words, that um, that tend to um, to belie some of the things we've been told in um, uh, well in Sun God Day School, and a whole lot of paganism that's crept in and replaced things that were clearly we understand this 
picture of the Mishkan, clearly meant to be very pure, very, well, Kadesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, set apart. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come to judge Babylon. Boker Tov, folks. Good morning. Welcome back. And, of course, Shabbat Shalom. Let's talk about a, a Torah portion that, admittedly, um, sometimes people's eyes tend to glaze over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that a little bit. I also am concerned because there are so many ways of looking at this, one of the main ones of which is just to say, well, let's ignore what it says, and let's talk about trying to spiritualize it into something different because that sometimes is easier than actually studying the detail, especially when there's so much detail. I mentioned that uh, this is not an architectural digest that we're, we're looking at here, but it sometimes is difficult uh, not to... Um, to see that that's how the, the overwhelming first ta- take looks at it. But I want to do it this way today. I want to start out, as um, as I often do, by just outlining a couple of the themes, some, some words, some phrases that really stick out at me as I go through this idea of the, uh, the first of the set here that we're going to have of Torah portions that describe the, um, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the... Um, the Mikdosh, uh, uh, the dwelling in the wilderness. There's lots of ways to put it. The house of Elohim and so forth. A portable throne room, a portable house. And, and we see some, some references in here. For one, this word holy of holies, Kadosh uh, Kodeshim. And whether or not the things that we're dealing with in the world, by contrast, are, are holy. Uh, it's also, we're going to see it in this portion, we're going to see it in subsequent portions. There's a, a reference to those who give, those who have a willing heart. Something about a willing heart that's kind of nice. And interestingly, the Torah, we're told uh, later, and uh, people will say this is when that old stuff is done away with, the Torah is to be written on hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. And uh, there kind of seems to be a parallel there, right? Willing hearts. Another one. This is another one of those words that is going to appear all throughout the rest of this book of Exodus. It's the work of the skillful workman. And that's an interesting phrase. It's not the work of the uh, the mental incompetent who gets to be a cabinet minister in the Ministry of Truth and the Biden-Fuhr regime, and he's picked because he's got some perversion that marks him as being an abomination unto Yah. Isn't that amazing? It's almost like when you see work of the skillful workman, honestly, and I guess I may emphasize this again, it is uh, a complete anathema to everything that now describes America with a K. You take what his word says and turn it upside down, and we talk about people with competence, skillful workmen, people who have willing hearts and want to do the work. They want to come together. What do we got in the uh, in the opposite sense today? Those whose sole purpose is to, well, they come but to kill and destroy, to steal, to tear down that which someone else built up. You didn't build that! And, and so many of these evil things. The work of the skillful workman, in other words, ought to just leap off the page as so in contrast to what we're seeing today. And I guess what I'm saying is, when we go through this, one of the things that's evident with the detail, the description, uh, even the things that are given, the precious things, the real things, gold, silver, um, brass, bronze, uh, and all of these um, uh, blue, purple, fine twine, linen, and so forth, real things that are precious and that represent um, either work or the work of mining or refining or, or obtaining, as opposed to fake that can be made out of nothing, right? Uh, the fake dollars. The work of the criminals and the uh, incompetent and the evil is the opposite of what we're seeing here. 
All right. So with that, let me let me talk about a couple of elements, and um, I'm going to lay out a kind of a broad swath of things today up front, and then we'll uh, we'll see where it leads because I think there is a real pattern here that should emerge from something that otherwise does seem a bit dry and a bit tedious and a bit boring, and you'll see that in the commentaries as well. So let's do this. Let's first put. Um, well, put to rest, get past maybe the spiritualization, oh yeah, and the twisting, too. Because um, one of the things that strikes me about so much of what we've heard about, oh, I am the Holy Spirit in the temple, well, that's fine, and that's important, okay? So I'm not saying that that is not true. The problem is, what we see here is that the Ruach, the set-apart spirit of Elohim, comes to dwell in a place in the Holy of Holies. Which is, if you think about it, it's pretty high, highfalutin. It's it's made with hands by people who have willing hearts and skillful workmen. It's made of things like gold. In other words, it's a place that's very precious, very set apart. Matter of fact, that's why why it's called the set apart of the set apartness. And what we're saying is that uh, there's a, uh, there's a difference somehow with the spiritualization. It says, oh, my, my heart, I don't have any real Torah written upon there. I don't keep his Sabbaths. I don't eat what he says is food. I don't honor what he says is marriage. I don't believe what he says is real, is uh, is important at all. In other words, turn things upside down and you expect the Holy Spirit to dwell in that um, caca de tute caca as opposed to the holy of holies. Color me real disgusted on that score. There, there are some issues there that have to do with the twisting. Now, with, with that in mind, let's, let's go through a couple of the places that I'm sure most people have heard. So if you do a, a, a search and you look for words like temple, because you're not going to find Mishkan, right, in the Greek words, unfortunately. But um, one of the places we'll see this, there's actually a few of them, but it's in John, Yohanan chapter 2. And what's fascinating to me about this is the very chapter itself kind of helps to reveal some of the twisting. Now, everyone knows where it says, um, what sign do you show us? They ask Yeshua. And in verse 19, has, he says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Destroy this temple. Well, they're confused. Uh, it took sixty-five. It took forty-six years to build this. You're gonna, you're gonna raise it up. Well, of course, John tells us he was speaking of the temple of his body. Okay. Um, first off, I might suggest that there's a difference between the temple of his body and, say, um, well, the um, Secretary of Health and Human Services that doesn't even know whether he has cojones still or not. Uh, so there are bodies that are temples and there are bodies that are desecrated temples. Paul's going to talk about that. We'll get there in a minute. But what is interesting to me is let's look at the context of this whole chapter because it's kind of fascinating and it really, I think, sets the stage. And it's like several things I'm going to go over today that um, if we compare... The whole context of the places where these these elements that seem to be taken out of context appear, we start to say, wow, isn't that interesting? There's a pattern, too, that has to do with the temple and the Mishkan and the Mikdash and his set-apart place and the Holy of Holies and how that contrasts with things that are right here in the context of the um, well, the elements that, that contrast so dramatically with today. So here we go, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding. Oh, this is the story of the, the wedding at Cana, at, at, um, in Cana of the Galilee. This is the first miracle. All right, We all know the story. And then it goes on to say, um, Now the Pesach of the Jews... Uh, now let me read it in the English, the mistranslation. Now it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Eh, full stop. Okay, this was his brother, right? That's who, that's who Yohanan was. Uh, he would have been what? He would have been of the tribe of Judah himself. He would have understood the Passover and what it says in Scripture that uh, nowhere, nowhere 
Nowhere in the Torah does the creator of the universe say, this is the Passover of the Jews. He says, this is my Pesach, mine. These are my set-apart times, my feast, my Moedim. To demonize them by saying that they're somebody else's, even if it's great that the, the Jews and those who walk in obedience keep them, that's fine. But it's his. Let's not demean what he says is his by saying it's to pass over the Jews. Do you believe for a second that John didn't know that? That the guy that wrote this book in the original language, which was almost certainly Hebrew, didn't know that it was the Pesach period? You don't have to put of the Jews in there at all? Because it wasn't. It was of Kol Israel. So when I read this, the first thing I think is somebody twisted what John wrote here. Because he didn't have to explain that. And he wouldn't have put it that way. Because he knew what it was without having to qualify it with something which is just plain not only wrong, but antithetical to what Yah himself says. Okay, so that's the context here, is that this is taking place at Passover, at Pesach. And he went up to the temple. And what happens next? Oh yeah, I remember this. This is the story of where he goes in and raises hell in the temple and whacks the money changers with a bullwhip. Now, that's one of those things we say, well, this, is, this isn't the kind of gentler, fuzzier Jesus who did away with the law. No, this is a pretty, um, uh, this is a man that has genuine manliness, if you will. He's had it. He goes in, he sees those money changers in there doing business. He makes a whip, he drove them out. And I suspect there were probably some pretty, uh, well, uh, physical exchanges that took place. He turned over the tables, poured out the, the fake money and the, well, the, 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 the things that were actually probably closer to real money, even though they may have been diluted at this point, um, than, than the fiat bucks of today. Overturned the tables. Take this stuff away, he says. Do you dare make my father's house a house of merchandise? A bait, basically, for money changing for, uh, um, well, nowadays we'd say commerce, right? The kind of thing that's going to represent the mark of the beast. Zeal for your house has written me up. They, they note that they remembered that scripture here. And they answered. And they said, well, what, what sign do you give us to show us that it's you who are doing these things? Okay, and then we get the response that we know. So that's the context. The context is that this is Passover, and they are doing things in his temple, in his temple, in the temple of the creator of the universe, that he doesn't want to have happen there. And he makes it real clear. And then we get the reference to the, the body, which is his body, which is, in fact, a temple that will be raised up in three days and three nights. He was speaking about that. So there's part of the context. And I think that kind of helps us at least to, to put the spiritualization in place. Because what is he concerned about? He's concerned about this temple, if you will, being desecrated. And I look at uh, what was going on there, and I think, well, that was bad. It was obviously bad enough that it upset him. And yet... Compare that to the kind of crap that's happening today, folks. And people that say that my temp- my body is the temple of Elohim, and what's being done to that? Oh, yeah, and, and, you know, my little boy, my little girl, those are going to be the temple of Elohim, too. You want to cut off their breasts and their genitalia and inject them with drugs? You want to put some Zyklon B in them, change their mRNA, uh, uh, use that to, to modify their DNA, so they can't even bring forth additional... How is that for desecrating a temple, if that's what we believe? Well, let's go through another couple here. Uh, there are several places in the book of Corinthians, a letter to the people in Corinth, that we will see references to, um, to things like this. Uh, one of them shows up in chapter 3. 
And I think this is interesting, again, because of the context. Um, this is Shaul, Paul, he writes, and he says, I, brethren, I couldn't speak to you as a spiritual people, but as kind of a, a, a carnal people, people who don't understand the spiritual things. You are babes in the Mashiach. All right, here's a famous line. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, because up until now you were milk drinkers, right? You couldn't handle it. You're still not able to handle it. And, uh, of course, you've heard me joke about it. I think we got a whole lot of, of the whore church today that not only can't handle solid food or steak or meat, they can't handle milk. They're not even ready for the water sometimes. You're still carnal, he says. And, and he gives the, 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 the uh, descriptions here that we're used to. Why are there envy and strife and divisions among you? You're not behaving like anything other than mere men. And you got your, your various teachers and you follow after and so forth. Uh, there is no other foundation anyone can lay than that which is laid. Now, here's the irony. What is the foundation? It's the Mashiach, Yahushua, the salvation of Yah. What do they turn it into? Yep, another Jesus who did away with his own instruction and therefore is a liar and the truth is not in him. Already, what Paul wrote has been twisted and turned on its head. He talks about a foundation before people even read the translations. The foundation has been destroyed. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, he says, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, guess what he's referencing? The exact things we're talking about here, these gifts that were given in order to build that original Mishkan in the wilderness. Well, one's work will become clear. Notice how he's laying this out. One's work will become clear. The day will declare it. It'll be revealed by fire. The fire will test each one's work, what kind of work it is. If he's built on the rock, Right? There's another thing. If he's built with things that are real and precious, it endures. He receives a ward. But if it's burned, well, he suffers loss. He himself will be saved uh, also through the fire. Here we go. This is the verse everybody remembers, but uh, I want to set up the context. The context is he, too, is talking about building a temple with all this boring stuff and all this indications about these real things, gold, silver, brass, bronze, um, fine twine, linen, precious stones, what is it about that? I'm going to suggest there's a lot more, but at least we're going to get a little bit here. That work will be tested by fire. Notice, well, we see lots of places in Scripture where gold and silver, they are refined by fire. I think there's an important element here on that score. I guess you could say that too seems to fit with whatever it is that we want to spiritualize, this temple that's within us. Is it refined by fire? Is it going to stand the test, as Paul says? Here's how he puts it in verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of Elohim, and that the Ruach Elohim, that's a better rendering than the uh, Holy Ghost, dwells in you? If anyone, he says, ooh, this sounds kind of, hmm. If anyone defiles the temple of Elohim, Elohim will destroy him. So, you know, for those that say the temple of God is within me, and so I'm going to have a pork sandwich to celebrate how holy I am, I will suggest maybe you better just take a pause there and pray about it a little bit, if nothing else. Because, he says, the temple of Elohim is set apart, Kadosh, which you are. And right there, the spiritualization too often misses the point. Uh, if, the, uh, if the center part of the temple, the tabernacle, the Mishkan, is the um, Kadesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, and we want to be that, claim that we're that, then, you know, bear verse 17 in mind. Anyone defiles that temple, uh, he is at risk, I'll put it that way, a little more kindly and gently, he is at risk of destruction. Because the temple is supposed to be set apart, Kadosh, which he says, you are. Okay, well, as, as, uh, as harsh as that sounds, let's go to the next one. And uh, this one, of course, is one that um, I've mentioned in a lot of contexts. Uh, chapter, the um, 
chapter 6 of Corinthians, and then he's going to write a whole other letter to them as well, and that's probably even more challenging. But what's interesting about chapter 6, we're going to get another reference to the temple. It also has a reference to something else that I can't help but think, huh, this is topical. The context here is right smack out of the headlines today. Does any of you, he says, dare, if you have a matter, a concern against one another, you go to law... Now remember, folks, what we have today is not law in the sense of Torah. It's not even law in the sense of what was once called the supreme law of the land. You know that. Supreme law of the land doesn't mean squat anymore. Right to keep and bear arms, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom to be free of illegal uh, and unlawful search and seizure. Hell, none of that applies to the peons. As a matter of fact, as we saw yesterday, and here I'll pause just for a second to lay the context out, there was a whistleblower, a guy named Alexander Smirnoff, and he basically tried to point out that the uh, the fake puppet head senile criminal mob boss Joe Biden and his whoring crackhead son Hunter are guilty of what we all know bribery treason selling out the country for uh, you know cross my palm with silver but it's not even really silver just a few million fiat bucks a fellow named Alexander Smirnoff had uh, provided evidence to the FBI well guess what happened to him oh yeah Uh, He's going to be nailed to the uh, proverbial wall. How about I'll clean it up a bit? And uh, now that um, the the bribery scandal that came to light has been um, put down by the the so-called Department of Justice. Isn't that cute? You come out and you say, here's evidence that this guy that is, in fact, the, uh, the tyrant is guilty of high crimes, misdemeanors, bribery, and so forth. Well, we're going to fix that. We'll nail you to the wall. So they did. So then Biden goes and demands that the impeachment charges be dropped. Because see, <laughs> just like Hitler, I killed the witnesses. I'll put him in jail. If I need to, I'll destroy him. There are people being very upset that uh, this fellow named Navalny, who was released from the gulag in Russia, uh, seems to have died. He died suspiciously. So it's funny to me, all the people getting bent out of shape about he died suspiciously. Well, remember a fellow named Scalia? He was a Supreme Court justice. He died suspiciously. His body wasn't even autopsied. What an amazing coincidence. A fellow named Jeffrey Epstein, who, as everybody knows, did not commit suicide, but they turned off the cameras. How about others? Seth Rich. Okay, don't tell me about this guy who was a Soviet or a Russian extremist and bad things happened. Yes, I'm sad about that. That's bad. we got tyrants over there. Okay, but as uh, somebody that we once read about said, you know, take care of the log in your own eye first before you go out and saying, oh, look at those bad Russia, Russia, Russians. Okay? Uh, Hitler has a list longer than most people's arm of dead folks who aren't going to testify against her. And then, of course, we have this. As you probably heard, um, Donald Trump was taught by the criminals in New York masquerading as a court that um, you don't even have to commit a crime and we can nail your ass to the wall, you blankety-blankety-blank. Far-left Judge Ingeron. There's a really disgusting excuse for a human being, much less a black-robed priest of a fake god. He, uh, he issued a verdict and ordered Trump to pay ah close to half a billion bucks for a non-crime because he can. And because he's going to show you that if you try to upset their beautiful wickedness, like the Wicked Witch of the West pointed out, we will show you what the law is. He even said that um, even though there's no fraud here, well, they claim there's fraud, there's no harm done. There's no actual crime. There's nobody who is uh, has been damaged by what Trump did. The people who were supposedly defrauded, the insurance agencies and the banksters, they got their money. They got their interest. They got no complaint. 
And I know of people who've tried to take lawsuits to court. Uh, for example, the state of Texas, when they rigged the 2020 election. Remember the deal with Texas? You don't have standing. You don't have damages. We just stole an election. What, what right does Texas have to come in here and claim that any harm is done? Case dismissed. Isn't that funny? Now they come and they say, well, when it comes to Trump, though, we don't need any harm. We don't need anybody who's actually been damaged. We don't need standing. We don't need a claim for relief upon which relief can be granted. We don't need nothing. We're just going to fine his ass because we can and because we want to show you that don't you dare stand up against us. This is law, folks. Well, no, it's not. It's anti-law, but it's what passes for it. Back to Paul. Right now, here's his point, and I think what he's making here is a really good point. It's just that maybe what we're seeing today is so much bigger than what happened in Corinth and what Paul was writing about that it kind of boggles our mind by scale. Back to verse 1 again. Does any of you dare, having a matter against one another, to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Can you, can you, anybody dare to tell me that this fellow, Engeron, is anything other than an unrighteous slime bag? How about Letitia James, Attorney General of New York? How about Fannie Willis? So many people that are literal scum. They took an oath. They put their hand on a Bible. We all know they lied. They're guilty of making war against the people. This is called treason. Paul says, how dare you have uh, have the, the chutzpah to go to law before the unrighteous? Don't you know? that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, you are unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we will end up judging Malachim angels, the messengers of, of Yah? How much more, then, the things that pertain to this life, he says. Now, I'm reading that, and I'm going, how is it any of us are sitting still and watching this going on and even saying that these people deserve titles like judge or attorney general? They are scum. They are absolute froth. Servants of Satan who walk in men's shoes. They come but to, you know it, steal, to kill, and destroy. That's what Engeron said. How about disgorgement? We just want to take his stuff. How about 355 million bucks plus taxes, interest, and penalties? That'll teach you to stand up against us. As Paul said, that'll teach you to go to law before the unrighteous. If you have judgments about things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the world, by the uh, kahal, the, the, the gathering, the, the ecclesia is the Greek word. I, you know, I'm not wild about the word church, but least esteemed by any gathering of his people, those that are called by his name, to judge? I say to this to your shame, he says. It, is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? I'm looking at this Engeron. I'm looking at Letitia James. I'm looking at these scumbags and thinking, wow, Paul nailed it a couple thousand years ago. Why does brother go to law against brother? And that before unbelievers. I, and I, I look at this and I think, any questions? Now, isn't it funny? This is the setup for what we're talking about, this place that is uh, the home of the Ruach, the temple which you are. He's telling us here uh, before and, and now again. Therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather just accept wrong? Why, in fact, do you let in instead yourselves be cheated? Isn't that amazing? You go before a judge and wrong, guess what's going to happen? You go to the FBI and you say, I got information about that scumbag. Yeah, you're going to jail too. We'll, we'll teach you 
That's what the Department of Justice is for, to nail the innocent. And those that are stupid enough to think they might get justice by going before, as Paul puts it, unbelievers. Now, you yourself, she says, you do wrong and you cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of Elohim? Now, what does the word righteous mean? The word righteous in Torah, the word righteous in Hebrew, the word righteous in Scripture has to do with obedience to his instruction. The righteous know his word. The righteous walk in obedience. The righteous are called zadikim. The same word is used to to apply to students of his word. Those who not just uh, hear, but seek to do. Don't be deceived. And then he lists a bunch of things. Now, this is also interesting. I'm going to spend just a minute on this. It's not the focus today, but it certainly is kind of a symptom of what it says. I'll read the English and notice that I don't like this. All right? Because I think this is a crappy translation. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves. Okay, there's a whole list of things here, essentially anti-Torah. The problem is, some of them are far better renderings of the original than others. Homosexuals, as you know, it is male homosexuality that is explicitly condemned and to which a death penalty is applied. But the, the word that bugs me in here is fornicators. What's a fornicator? The, the Greek word is actually porneia. Now, porneia just means a perversion of one kind or another, generally sexual perversion. Uh, it's things that, well, for example, if you put on a uniform and you, you claim that you're a woman and you've been promoted to general and you're the de- department of head of human services and then you're going to lie to people. Uh, let me read a quote I saw this morning. I, I'm talking about, um, uh, oh, what's his last name? Dick. Oh... Oh, anyway, it'll come to me. Uh, but you know who I'm referring to, head of uh, health and human services. And um, the uh, the comment was, he has created within HHS a couple of new politically correct idiot organizations that have names you wouldn't believe and shouldn't believe about the uh, Department of Equity for uh, the promotion of, you know, uh, getting rid of people that are carbon-based life forms and breathers. I, it's just idiotic. I saw a comment in the article, one of a number that was referring to... Uh, to this said, here's a dude without balls who pretends he's a woman who wants me to pretend that his fantasy about breathing in and out carbon dioxide is just as real. These are the people that Paul is talking about, in other words, that we will allow to judge us and to make laws and nobody stands up against them. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators. Now, okay, porneia. I will suggest that we've got a whole lot of porneia today. You want to be a cabinet minister? You want to be the Secretary of Transportation like Pete Butt is gay? There's some pornea for you. He fits into a number of categories here. Teaching others to do so. Turning kids into just as much of a servant of Satan as they are. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of hard-pressed to name anybody in the cabinet or in the, uh, in the oval orifice that isn't pretty much a, kind of a, a walking-talking definition of what pornea really means. And, of course, the problem is that the word fornication implies that um, anybody that has sex, even if it's sex that the Creator says is perfectly okay, but you don't have a piece of paper from the Almighty State, from those unrighteous judges, that that's somehow the problem. By the way, I want to read one thing here. This is the, um, uh, here it is, this is the the Strong's uh, lexicon for G4202, the word porneia in the Greek. And it's fascinating to me, uh, the outline of biblical usage, number one definition says, illicit sexual intercourse. Okay, uh, so far, so good. 
Definition A, adultery. And then some other things that are not illicit sexual intercourse. Uh, intercourse with animals, bestiality, that is. Intercourse with close relatives, okay? What, in fact, would be called... Um, Oh, thank you. Incest. There was a word I couldn't come up with when I needed to. Incest. Uh, forbidden relationships between close relatives, brothers and sisters, fathers and daughters. So there's, there's stuff that's forbidden and stuff that's not forbidden, and, and they lump it all together here as if it's all the definition of porneia. might be in the Greek. It's not in the Hebrew. Here's one that really irritates me. Sexual intercourse with a divorced man or woman. That is a mistranslation and a misreading of Scripture. If a woman has a certificate from her now ex-husband, there is nothing wrong with her going out and remarrying. It is not porneia, and therein lies the rub. Ironically, they include the worship of idols in here, and by that definition, most of Roman Catholicism would be porneia. We like it or not. Um, again, my point in all of this is, if we don't understand what the meaning of the words is, if we aren't able to rightfully, righteously divide his word of truth, we're not fit to judge one another, we're not fit to judge our own behavior, and for crying out loud, why are we complaining about scumbags like this Judge Engeron or Fannie Willis or others making up crimes and saying, ha ha, isn't it funny, you don't know any better. You don't know your rights, you don't have any. I can infringe all I want. I can take your stuff. I can prevent you from worshiping a God because you don't even know which God is the real one. You don't even know his real name. You don't know what he wrote. You're in a whole world of hurt. If we cannot right, righteously, rightfully divide the word of truth, then all of these other things follow. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of Elohim? Don't be deceived, he says. So were some of you, but now you're washed. You're set apart so that you are justified in the name of the Mashiach, Yahushua, and by the Ruach Elohim. About four or five verses after the end of that sequence here, he goes on to say this, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Ruach, the set-apart spirit, which is in you, whom you have from Elohim, and you are not your own? You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify Elohim in your body and in your spirit, which belong to Elohim. So there is this common thread here about this idea of the temple. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating to look at the idea of the temple itself. And maybe that helps at least kind of up front to explain why there's so much ink that is put in, in this book about this temple. And why merely saying that, uh, you know, oh, it's, 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 a, you know, as long as I got a piece of paper here, uh, and that's then, then my, if the piece of paper says my temp, my, my body is the temple of God, then that's okay. It doesn't matter if I even know which God we're talking about. Uh, again, it's important, I think, to try to study the details and understand what's really being talked about here. With that, let's go to one more place. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and, um, this is the one where, um, this is the one where we're going to see that, well, more difficult commentary from Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And, and I've talked about this, it seems like, a lot over the last few weeks. Verse 14 in chapter 6, the second letter to the people in Corinth. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He's just finished saying in the first letter, don't go to quote-unquote law before unbelievers, because actually, you know, 
what we're talking about is choice of law. Whose law matters? Well, if they don't believe that the, the Creator's law matters, and that's what we got with people who put their hands on a Bible today and lie and say, the hell with what he wrote. I'm going to teach your children abomination. I'm going to turn them into something that wouldn't be allowed into that holy of holies or even be allowed to reproduce. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness, zodicness, uh, zadikim, people who know his instruction, what do they have fellowship with lawlessness, with the opposite? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has the Mashiach with Belial? Or what part has an unbeliever with a, a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement, here we go, this is the uh, temple reference, what agreement has the temple of Elohim with idols? Now stop right there for a second. With idols. What is the real idol? Well, you know, uh, I, I think probably one of the better definitions of, of an idol is anything that comes ahead of the one true Elohim. I don't care if it's a car or a Super Bowl game or, um, you know, an AI tool that will tell you what he wrote is wrong and uh, here's what it really is supposed to have said. Or uh, maybe a priest that says, pay no attention to that word of God. You can't read it anyway without one of us to help you. It's not like this is new, folks. But what part has a um, has the temple of Elohim with idols? And we're not just talking about idols of stone or of wood is the point. And again, we, we may be talking soon about idols that are made out of a different kind of stone, out of silicon. And maybe they'll even be animated, and maybe they'll even tell you things. Hell, they may even be the ones that will mediate and, and mandate the mark of the beast and provide all the wonderful feedback through the Internet of Things. For you, he says, you are the temple of the living Elohim. And here he quotes Leviticus 26, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their Elohim, and they shall be my people. Okay, great. Remember, um, much of those who would say that we're his are still in exile, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Ahola and Aholaba, for idolatry, for having turned away, for having put another god in his place. Therefore, and I like this, as you can guess, come out from among them and be separate, says Yahuwah. Do not touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters, says Yahuwah Zevuot. So again, it's about a, a different kind of an understanding of the temple than um, certainly a lot that, in fact, might have uh, idolatry in their heart instead and have another God in place of him um, might be willing to believe, might have been taught. Because, again, uh, some of them aren't ready for milk, much less meat at this point. From here, what I want to do next is, is go to a couple of commentaries that are specific to the Torah portion, some observations, some of which I kind of indicated last night, because, uh, again, uh, it's not like any of this is truly unique. People have been reading this and trying to understand what it says for, uh, well, millennia at this point. But here's an interesting one from a, uh, a fellow on Aish called um, uh, Zvi, which is a rabbi, I guess. He says, uh, every time we open up the Torah, it happens every year, we read this book of Exodus, it kind of stares us in the face. We ask ourselves, what in the world did Elohim have in mind when he wrote all these intricacies and minutia about building the tabernacle, the Mishkan? This seems more like it's something that's appropriate for an architecture class, maybe than, uh, than God's instructions for living. What do we make of this? And um, he says... Um, uh, look here, and this is the part we're talking about, Terumah, where Elohim tells Moses to go collect donations from all of the people, Kol Israel. Now, you'll notice a lot of the uh, the rabbis will use the term the Jews. Well, uh, they might like to say Jews, but they're not all of the tribe of Judah. 
and they are not even all of those that were later called the, 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 the nation of Judah. They included at this point what were later the ten lost tribes and others that were grafted in. So, what were they supposed to do? They got to bring all this specific materials, gold, silver, copper, turquoise, wool. Uh, why did they bring specific materials? Now, here's the observation that I think is unique, and this is probably all I'm really going to focus on in, in this part. Um, isn't it enough just to donate some money to the Tabernacle Building Fund? Now, that I thought was a great question, a little tongue-in-cheek maybe, uh, but why not? Why not just give a little fake money to the Tabernacle Building Fund? Oh, hell, we get the 501c3 tax deduction too. I can write it off my taxes to that other idol who is the one I fear more than the living God. Why the emphasis on items, specific, precious things that need to be donated as opposed to just, well, simple fiat fake, and even if they were going to give real money? Well, he goes on to say, um, Elohim must feel something like uh, like this level of detail when it comes to his Mishkan. It's his home in the world, right? It was going to be a movable temple, a, a tent that could be erected and moved, and it would go where they went, and he would dwell among them. His divine presence rests among his special people, his set-apart people. No wonder he cares about the construction and wants to put a lot of detail into it. Now here, here he reads this passage from Ezekiel. And uh, I'll admit, in years past, I've read some of this, and I tend to scratch my head. But in this context, I hope this will resonate with everybody here the way it did with me when I read it. This is Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 10 and 11. And he says this. Now, I saw it in a couple different Bible versions. Uh, the New King James, for example, translates house or bait in Hebrew, and that's the word in the Hebrew, twice in that one verse. One time it translates it as temple. So maybe it's not a problem, but it's interesting to me. That's not the word he uses. He says bait. Tell bait Israel, right? The house of Israel. Tell bait Israel about the house, about bait Elohim. How cool is that? Tell the house of Israel about the house of Elohim. And let them be, ooh, wait a second. This is going to go hard. And let them be ashamed of their sins. Let them calculate the design let me go through this, and we'll see if it doesn't kind of begin to leap off the page a bit. If they become ashamed of all that they've done, let them and make known to them the form of the bait, the house, and its design, its entrances, its exits, all of its structures. So, ask the rabbi here, just how does the form and structure of the bait, the house of Elohim, the Mishkan, how does that connect to being ashamed of sins? Now, here's where it's interesting. The, the rabbi is not going to get it in the context that I've been railing on um, most of this uh, this discussion. The idea that there are people who say, the house of, of God is within me. right? The holy of holies is in my heart that is not, in fact, um, clean, does not have the Torah written upon it. I don't keep his days. I don't keep his mitzvot. I don't keep what he says is food. I don't keep what he says is sexually appropriate and not. I don't care about any of that. But he's here right in my heart. Yes, you're well, or something's in there, right? The ghost is within me. It may not be holy. If we remind ourselves, says this rabbi, why Elohim is so concerned with the details and minutia of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the temple, then we become thoroughly embarrassed by our Torahlessness. All right. 
I'm okay with that. I think that's a good statement. But what's more interesting to me is the fact that if we do this compare and contrasting and we see all of this discussion about the law and going to law before unbelievers and getting all bent out of shape about wrongs that are being done and all the time proclaiming the Torah is written on my heart. Hell, I don't even know what my rights are. Uh, period. We've got such a mess in there that there's nothing set apart. There's nothing holy about it. Tell Beit Israel, the house of Israel, about the house of Elohim and let them be ashamed of what they have done to this whole mess. And if they look at the details and they begin to see the construction, the intricacy, the gold, the silver, the precious things, the, the, red, the, the blue, purple, and scarlet, the work of the skillful workmen that all goes into this, maybe the pieces will start to fit. All right, well, okay, that's part A. Here's part B. couple of items, and as you know, the... Um, the late rabbi um, of, oh, I see, wait a second, I misquoted the, the author of that. This is just the, the people that put it together. Um, this is Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who, who put a couple of pieces up. I, I, uh, he's passed, unfortunately, he was chief rabbi of, uh, of England for a number of years. I always uh, I loved reading the guy, and I thought he had a really good head on his shoulders and made a lot of good points. He had particularly some really interesting things to say about the... Um, the Mishkan, and these particular Torah portions. Now, this is the first one of two that I want to make at least a, a reference or two. Uh, to. And he notes this. He says, this sequence of parashot, starting with the one we have this week, uh, Terumah, right, an offering. And the next one is Tetzaveh, then Kitisa, then Vayakel, and Pekudai. It's puzzling. To a lot of folks, a lot of ways. First, it details in some it details in some detail the construction of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, this portable house of worship that the Israelites built and carried with them throughout the desert, and it does so in exhausting and exhaustive detail. The narrative takes almost the whole of the last third of the entire book of Exodus. Why so long? Why such detail? The tabernacle, after all, was just a temporary home for the divine presence. Just a temporary home. It was superseded later by the uh, the temple, the Solomon's temple. Now, you know, and I read that, and I'm thinking, okay, the rabbi is not going to see the connection because he hadn't all heard all the stuff that we were already talking about, the the spiritualization. But wait a minute. This, this Mishkan is just a temporary home? Ahem. Everybody get it, right? So are we. So is our physical body. It's just a temporary home. It's a portable building. It goes with us, and it's it's a home for the divine presence. Is there a better description of what the Mishkan is supposed to be if we think that he's supposed to dwell within us, and that indeed, if we allow him, if we clean it up, he can and will? All right, besides which, what's the point? Why does he even bother to put this part about the Mishkan in the book of Exodus at all? Right? Uh, because most of the rabbis will tell you, look, it fits better in Vayikra, in Leviticus. we got all the rules there about the sacrifices and all those things that are, well, maybe equally boring. The service of the Mishkan, the sacrifices offered there. Uh, in contrast, you might say that the book of Exodus is kind of like the birth of a nation. It's about the transition of these people, Kol Israel, from a family to a people and their journey from slavery, from abject bondage, cruel bondage, to freedom. It rises to a climax, obviously, with the covenant made between Elohim and his people at Mount Sinai. What's the tabernacle got to do with this? Well, we're going to find out, right? Because it turns out that the tabernacle and the setup here is key to what happens after they reject 
him and his covenant. And that's what he says, and I, I like this. He says the answer, it seems to me, is profound. Now, I got a kick out of the way Rabbi Sachs put it. Okay, what he says is, if you remember the history of the Israelites until now, it's been a long series of complaints. You know my terminology, whining. And there's no water. Why'd you bring us out in the desert to die? They complained. They complained when the first intervention of Moses made their situation worse, right? We used to have straw, now we got no straw. Then they complained about the Red Sea. Why were, why'd you bring us here? Because there were no graves in Egypt? You brought us out here in the desert to die? What have you done? What do we say to you? Leave us alone. Let us just be good little slaves. Would have been better for us to be slaves to the Egyptians than to die in the desert. But wait, we're not done yet. After they crossed the Red Sea, they continued to whine. I'm changing just that one word, of course. First, about the lack of water. Then that the water was bitter. Marah. And then, about the lack of food. Well, then about more lack of water. Then within just weeks of the revelation at Sinai, the only time in the human history that Elohim appeared to an entire nation, they went out and made themselves a, um, a golden calf. And if this unprecedented sequence of miracles cannot bring about a mature response on the part of a nation, what will? That's a great question. And I look at this nation today and I think, you know, talk about a bunch of whiners. No, it's worse than that, folks. And we'll come back and we'll connect that dot as we go through this. But I hope that should be increasingly obvious, the contrast here. And maybe the parallels between the whining in the uh, the desert and... um, well, things that we're hearing today. Okay, here comes the answer, as Rabbi Sachs sees it. In this time, and at this point, Elohim said, let's let them build something together. That simple command, he said, transformed the, um, the people of Israel, the mixed multitude, into Kol Israel. During the whole construction of the tabernacle, did you realize this? During the whole construction of the tabernacle, the Mishkan in the wilderness, there was no whining. There were no complaints. Not a one is recorded. The people contributed. Some of them gold, some silver, bronze. They brought skins and drapes. Others gave their time and their skills, the work of the skillful workmen. They gave so much, eventually Moses had to say, Okay, oh, we got plenty here, folks. A remarkable proposition is being framed, he says. It's not what Elohim does for us that transforms us. It's what we do for Elohim. Seems like a fellow named Kennedy took that and paraphrased it just a bit. But you get the idea. All right? Uh, So long as the crises were being dealt with by Moses, sit still and see the salvation of Yah, the Israelites remained in kind of a state of dependency. They whined. Wasn't enough. If people are going to grow up, he says, they better learn. You have to transition, become builders, if you're going to grow up from childhood to adulthood. Uh, to use that that Paul metaphor, if you're going to go from milk to meat, you got to learn to build. Elohim and his Torah is a call to responsibility. We're not supposed to just rely on miracles. I think that's important. And that is a, in fact, that's a, a fundamental teaching of, uh, of rabbinic Judaism, too. Uh, don't rely just on miracles. And on that score, I think they are on the ball. The Jewish view of the human condition, says Rabbi uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs, is that everything we achieve, now listen to this carefully, because maybe it might run afoul of some of what we've heard in the Sun God Day Church, but I think in general it's pretty sound. 
Everything we achieve, he says, is due to our own efforts. But remember what Scripture says? Don't you think for a second, it's by the strength of my own hand I have built this. Right? There's a, there's a very important line here. So the things we achieve are due to our own efforts, but equally, and let's not kid ourselves, unquestionably, essentially, they are the result of Elohim's blessing. He gave us the skills. He put us in a position to be able to do the things we do. Right In everything we're going to see here in the building of the Mishkan, and the two men that are named, and the, the work of the skillful workmen, he gave them that ability. They used it for him. It's about his blessing. All right, I love that. That's the setup. And then there's one more piece. Now, this is, I think, a bit more recent. I'm not sure exactly when he wrote these. But um, this is a kind of a cute, if you will, follow-on to that story. Um, what we value and why we value it is what we make. Okay? Now, he starts off with a story. And I hadn't heard this, but it does make sense. Um, it's about a study that was done by behavioral economist uh, Dan Ariely. It's called the Ikea effect. Everybody remember Ikea, and I've only been in one Ikea store my whole life. Ikea is, a, I think it's is it Danish or Dutch, and it's a company where they, they sell these the furniture in boxes, and you take the pieces, parts, and you put it together. Okay, and it's expensive stuff, but the, the point is he calls it the, the Ikea effect, or why we overvalue that which we make. The name comes from that store that sells self-assembly furniture. And says Rabbi Sachs, you know, for people who are challenged like me when it comes to physical skills, putting an item of furniture together is kind of like a giant jigsaw puzzle in which certain pieces are missing and others are in the wrong place. Still, even when it's done, even if it doesn't look as good as you might like, we tend to feel a certain pride in it. We look at it and we say, I made this. Even if we know somebody else designed it, somebody produced the pieces, somebody else wrote the instructions. There's something about when we are forced to put our own labor into it, that we value. It's a feeling that's expressed like in Psalm 128. Quote, When you eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, you will be happy, and it will go well with you. Now he goes on to describe how the experiment went, and he asked people to make a bunch of um, uh, origami, folding paper. And it turns out that when he, he then surveyed the class, uh, what, were, what are you willing to pay for this piece of paper that you folded yourself to keep it? And the answer was, about five times as much as somebody else in the class was willing to pay for the piece of paper they folded, <laughs> however much it was. So it's, this is my piece of paper. I made that. I'm happy with it. I want to keep it. And they valued it five times more than what they valued what somebody else did. Now, if they did it together, obviously, that's another study. But this is what happens. It's part of the long sequence, says the rabbi, about the building of the Mishkan. It begins in our Parsha here, uh, and it continues to the end of the book. Then he goes on and say, "Here, look here. This um, you have this idea of zimzum, and that Elohim gave the Israelites a chance to make something with their own hands, and that they would value it. Not only would they value it, he does. Uh, he, he talks about this in separate articles, and I think it's equally key. When they work together, they not only value their own contributions, they value the contributions of everyone else, and they come together as a community. That too is valuable because they made it. Everyone could contribute." Those who were of a willing heart with what they had. Some gold, some silver, some bronze, some uh, red-dyed ramskins, right? We remember all of these elements. Jewels, anointing oil for the, uh, for the uh, oil and for the incense and spices and so forth. Everybody had the opportunity to take part. Women and men and their labor of the people as a whole, uh, not just an elite. 
So, for the first time, Elohim was asking them not just to follow that cloud of fire through the wilderness or obey his instruction, but become active builders and creators. And because it involved their work, their energy, their time, the work of the skillful workmen, they invested something of themselves, whether it was gifts uh, of anything physical or spiritual or intellectual or physical, we value what we create. The effort we put into something doesn't just change the object, it changes us. And I think that is wonderful. Okay, so um, there is a lot more. He, he then goes on to describe some things that I thought were interesting and perhaps maybe I would take some issue with. Uh, the idea of the Sabbath. The Creator made the Sabbath and kept it holy, but it was various rabbis and various people out history added to it all kinds of additional commands. So they began to think they owned the Sabbath. Well, I don't know. He, he seems to see that as a positive thing. I'm not quite so sure because there's obviously a, a, um, a narrow path in that score as well. When we make something that is in accord with the way that he tells us to make it, and he shows us the plan, and we contribute our efforts to realizing the thing he's shown us, it's different than if we take something he says to keep and turn it into something else. And certainly that's what's happened with uh, the Sabbath and the Whore Church and other places as well. Now, I want to just kind of, uh, after stepping back and look at all this, make, make a couple of observations. Because this idea of building, to me, is, is the key here. And I think that's part, it's not the whole, but it's a large part of what it is about the Mishkan and this set-apart place in the Holy of Holies uh, that is so key to our understanding. Ultimately, we built the enclosure, now, we didn't really build it. If you think about it, now let's go back to the comparison of, of a human body and a place uh, where the, the Ruach, the Holy Spirit within us, and our own uh, nefesh and neshama, those spiritual elements and those intellectual elements and emotional elements, all of those things can dwell. I can't help but think now that this discussion about the body as the temple of Yah, it becomes a lot more clear, Right? We would say, well, we built it, right? I, I'm a bodybuilder, maybe. I, I worked out. I built my body. I took care of it. I, I fed it with the right things and the right nutrients and so forth. So there's an element of that. But ultimately, hey, who are we kidding? He gave it to you. He built it, right? He did just like he did with the Mishkan. He gave the plan. The plan is written in your DNA. You don't have to have the instructions that we have written out in such detail. The, um, the DNA that's within us, and by the way, which is being destroyed by some of the things that men are doing, that DNA contains all of this information. It contains much more information than the written instructions or even architectural drawings could contain. So when it comes to the parallels between the construction of the temple or the Mishkan and our own construction and a place for his Ruach to dwell within us, I think all of a sudden it becomes a lot more clear. But so hopefully does the reason for the detail and the reason for the fact that the interior parts, the parts that are the holy of holies, where he is going to dwell and speak with us, where that communication center is, that is to truly be exactly what the word holy of holies, Kadesh Kodeshim, means. It is the set-apart of the set-apart. And that's what makes it different and unique. Because it is exactly that. It's set apart. It's different and unique. It is not to be despoiled. So when it comes to all those other words, I spent some time talking about porneia and, and so forth. Things that essentially defile, 
Not just in the sense you don't have a piece of paper and you don't understand what his word says. No, it's about taking what he gave to us and what he told us to build and turning it into something different, which is the essence of what it means to defile it. To take something set apart and turn it into something common, even profane. All right, one more, um, one more commentary on, on all of this, because I think it also helps to explain why it is, as we look at the world today and we kind of recoil in horror, and we look at this Torah portion having to do with Teruma and those who have a willing heart bringing an offering and so forth, and I, I can't help but think, wow, in a way, we read a portion like this and we say, well, what's this got to do with a nation where we're seeing people hauled off to concentration camps, where they're literally trying to push World War III and Civil War II? where they're trying to do all of these evil things. They're bringing in invaders. They're destroying the entire world economy. They're destroying the energy infrastructure. They're going to tell people you're going to starve, and if you don't starve, you'll probably freeze to death first because of all the things we're doing. Well, if you think about what we are seeing here and what the exact polar opposite it is, the Mishkan is about people giving of their heart, giving of their skills, giving of their talents, and coming and building something together. What is the easy opposite? What is the satanic imitation? Tear something down. Reward incompetence. I mean, what do we see today? We, we saw this in the FAA. We want to hire people that are mentally incompetent. Yeah, that's who's going to be flying your planes and, and building the architecture that's going to keep you safe if you're stupid enough to get on one of those planes. How's that for incompetence? How's that for the opposite of building up? It's tearing down. It's destruction. It's evil. And it's no wonder... I guess that's, that's the thing that I want to make sure we point out. It's no wonder that if we see what the real importance is of coming together, those with a willing heart, those with the skillful workmen, those that uh, know what it means to, for something to be set apart, if we take that and instead we replace it with a mentality that says we reward incompetence, we search, we promote, we inundate, if we have children in schools that are that are uh, unique and that, that demonstrate outstanding skills and potential, what do we do with them? We throttle them. We dumb them down. We teach them not to think. We teach them that there is no God. You're nothing but a worthless piece of protoplasm. Evolve from slime, and slime you will become and die. And by the way, if you don't like it, just go ahead and cut yourself and slit your wrists. It's part of the death mentality. In every respect, it is the polar opposite of what he is telling us to do and how he tells us to do it. So again, when we, when we look at this and, and when we understand it, I, I think that's the thing that I, I hope we can begin to wrap our heads around. Uh, it's why I started off with the spiritualization and the fact that it's kind of a dumbing down of this idea of the set-apart holy place. We dumb it down, we spiritualize it into something that ends up being ultimately trivial, and therefore that much easier to do exactly what society is doing to everything else. Dumb it down, destroy it, ruin it with incompetence, and ultimately with evil. So um, Paul had it right. I better go back and, and reread that section from that last verse, because it's, it's so important, and it's probably a great way to, uh, to summarize things today. What fellowship has light with darkness, right? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness toward obedience with lawlessness? Or what communion has light with darkness? Or the Mashiach with the Baal or Belial or any of these fake Molech um, imitations, fake gods, idols? 
What part has a believer with an unbeliever? Therefore, come out from among her, come out from among them, be separate, says Yahuwah. And this, of course, is from, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a rephrase of what we see in Revelation, but it's also in, um, in Samuel. Do not touch the unclean thing, and I will receive you, he says. We're to build together, not destroy, as part of something which is literally intended to tear down that which is his. I think, too, that's part of the reason why I encourage folks, and and I believe it's so important to think about coming out. Because one of the things that has struck me for a number of years now is we we talk about come out of her and how they try to make it as difficult as possible. Uh, It's uh, as impossible as Big Brother can make it to separate yourself from from a dishonest weight and measure scheme, to separate yourself from all of these things. Oh, you can't pay your taxes. You can't pay your Internet bill. You can't go buy food at the grocery store, even if it's not food anymore. What does it require? What's the alternative? Come out, great. Then what? Well, now you have to start to build something. Turns out that's tougher. Turns out that it does require his help, his assistance. Nope, I didn't build this house with my own hands, but he has given us the skills, the capabilities, the connections, the um, the framework. In other words, all the things that we need to be able to do it. As I'm um, as I'm wrapping up, I'm thinking about one other thing that I thought was was kind of interesting. Um, one of the questions that you'll see in the Midrash, right? The gold, the silver, the, um, the scarlet, the purple, the, um, the threads, you know, all the things that were listed there. Where did he get all that stuff? Right? Where did he get all that stuff? Well, we, we kind of know the answer. By the way, where did they get the swords that they're going to use to take the land and so forth? They were slaves. They didn't have swords and shields. Where did he get it all? Well, we know that the story tells us that essentially they plundered Mitzrayim, Egypt. So that's where part of it came from, at least. Turns out, and I don't know whether I believe this or not, I, I guess I don't see any reason to doubt it, because I have no doubt that if there was something that they didn't get from Egypt, that they needed it, and he said, for example, you need a particular stone to go in the Urim Vitumim. Well, we don't have any of that particular stone. We're not even sure what that is. Uh, the, the, the story goes that uh, people be out roaming around looking for their morning matzah and their... Um, you know, the, 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 the food in the desert, the manna from heaven, and that among the manna from heaven, they just might find a little other gift from heaven too, uh, like a precious stone or something that they really needed in order to build, to build a part of the, uh, the tabernacle. Again, I can't prove that. I don't want to build doctrine upon that, but I do think it's kind of fascinating because it makes a point that we do see Scripture say to us over and over again, ask and you shall receive. If we need it, and he's told us we better have it, in order to do what he's telling us we need to do, guess what? He'll make the way. And that's a uh, that's an important item of faith and of understanding, too. So I, I really do like that. Uh, it's it, Again, it's not the kind of thing I can prove, but it is the kind of thing I tend to kind of want to smile and shake my head and say, isn't that just exactly the kind of creator that we know we have? And isn't that a blessing? So with that, I'll ask, again, any, any comments or questions um, at this point? I'll pause there. Did I miss anything? Let me, let me look in both rooms. Okay, I don't see any. So, um, let's pray. Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad. Father, we come before you. We thank you that you are who you say you are, that your word is true, and that you've given us your word, and that you have showed us some of these things that sometimes we read them, sometimes we read them several times, and maybe it just doesn't connect. 
Maybe we just don't see how the pieces fit. Maybe we just say, why have you provided us so much detail about something which doesn't seem all that relevant? So maybe we do tend to want to just spiritualize it and put it in a different box and hope that it goes away or that we don't have to worry about it too much. And yet, I'm thankful, and we see it, that sometimes those things in your word, at the point in time where we really begin to need to understand them, we come back around to them, and all of a sudden we see them in a whole different way. We see things going on in the world. We see lawlessness abounding, just like you told us would happen. We see the love of many growing cold, just like you warned us would happen. We see all of these things, including the preparations for what certainly looks like it will be the mark of the beast. If we're not there already, we're awfully close, and we understand that. We're thankful, Father, that you have told us all of these things. See, I have told you before. So we pray that you would continue to tell us, to show us, if there are things that we need, pieces that we don't have. We pray that you would provide those things in your time, when we need them, so that we might do the things you have for us to do and walk in that obedience. Protect us. Guide us in this time ahead. Bring us together. Help us to be builders. Help us to separate ourselves from those who are destroyers and who are incompetent because they choose. They choose the delusion rather than to walk in obedience. Help us to recognize, to come out and to be separate. To know that we do not have fellowship with the destroyers. But we are to come together as those who love you and seek to follow you and to keep your commandments and your instruction and to be obedient and builders. Abba, this we ask in your set-apart name. We thank you and praise you. Guide us to be good and faithful servants unto you. And all this we ask in your set-apart name. For you are our King, our Savior, our Redeemer. Yahuwah Zevuot, Yahuwah Zediknu, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, our all-sufficient El Shaddai. Hallelujah. Amen. Don't see any other questions. Uh, let's then begin to wrap up with the Aharonic blessing. We remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak in turn to Aharon and his sons and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Yisrael. Say to them, Ivarekaka Yahuwah Vadishmareka. Yair Yahuwah Panavaleka Vekuneka. Isaya Penavaleka. May Yahuwah bless you and keep you. May Yahuwah make his face to shine upon you. May Yahuwah lift his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen. And thus he said, they shall put Shemi, my name, on the Benai Yisrael, and I myself shall bless them. And may it be so.